Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast may contain strong language and matter of an aggressively artistic nature. Bringing you insightful interviews from industry insiders across the arts, this is Dark Unicorn in Conversation. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Dark Unicorn in Conversation. My guest today has been a staple in the worlds of cabaret, musical comedy, theatre, television and film for nigh on 40 years. Though he spent six years in the BBC drama department and wrote the screenplay for the now much-lauded Merchant Ivory movie Morris, as well as later an amount of The Vicar of Dibley, he is perhaps best known for his gloriously acidic musical comedy, first with Richard Sisson as Kit and the Widow, now with James McConnell, as well as his decade-long association with the Yvonne Arno Theatre in Guildford and their annual pantomime. Whether it be his acclaimed support for the Lake Joan Rivers on tour, or his and McConnell's latest body of work, skewering COVID-19, sending up Nando's, or discussing how to navigate woke culture, his hallmark has always been acceptance by the very establishment or reactionary audiences that he is genially filleting in his work. He is many things. Writer, singer, performer, actor, and architectural enthusiast. He is Kit Hesketh Harvey, and when he spoke to me from the former church he owns and saw out lockdown in in Norfolk, we started by discussing how he prefers to describe himself. I, I'm still trying to decide what to do with my life. Um, it's, it, it's extraordinary. I suppose if people ask, and on my passport it would say writer, performer, but I think the, if I have a niche, it's where, where words and music meet. My um, university was, I was a call scholar, but I was also an English exhibitioning person. And um, I've always been fascinated because I had a very thorough musical grounding as a cathedral chorister in the way that words enhance music and vice versa. And so um, virtually everything I have done has been in, in that nexus. But there's no way to describe that. I can't call myself a lyricist, really. Um, librettist, possibly. Um, I'm certainly not an actor. That's one thing I'm not. I can't do acting without music. But the writing sort of goes over into screenwriting occasionally. And um, uh, pantomime villain, that's the other thing. I love doing panto. And this will be 
we hope, my 10th year as the villain at Guildford. Um, and it's Robin Hood. So, of course, I'm the Sheriff of Nottingham. Um, and I was suggesting to the artistic director, bless her, Joanna Reed, who's tearing her hair out, you know, wondering how on earth she's going to keep her theatre open. Why don't we do it outside in the woods in Sherwood Forest, have a winter pantomime with lots of braziers, and I can enter on horseback, which yeah, I haven't done for ages. Um, I was involved in a festival in Barbados for 10 years, um, the Holders Festival, and um, I had to play the third lord in Twelfth Night, who has one line, will you go hunt my lord? And um, I thought, how can I build my path? <laughs> and it was an open-air theatre, and the, the house where we performed it had very, very good polo horses. So um, I thought, this is how to do it. So I put on a big old blouse and entered at gallop onto this stage, reared into the lights. Will you go on, my lord? And yeah, entrance round. It worked. But, um, I think the Sheriff of Nottingham arriving on horseback in the dark with Flambeau would be fantastic, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, um, I always feel that with performers, there is so much more of being born rather than made with it. So uh, it's, it's uh, you know, you sort of see things differently and you perform, you know, you, you think mm. performatively. And I suppose, I, rather than asking when did you decide to be a performer, I prefer to ask when did you realise you were a performer? I, I, it was kind of thrust upon me. It just sort of happened. It was the only thing I could do. Um, I think, you know, again, as a chorister, you're on show. And this was Canterbury, so, you know, it's quite a good show, quite a good set. Mm. Fabulous frogs. And, um, uh, and we had to do a service eight times a week. Um, so you got to learn all the great music. You got to learn a lot about architecture and, and Latin and, and weird little, you know, how to address an archimandrite. And um, those sort of useless bits of information proved in the event terribly useful. And to entertain my um, fellow choristers, I, during the boring sermons, would rewrite the lyrics of the final hymn um, scurrilously and um, try and get through, try and see if they could get through it without um, corpsing. But um, and again, you know, I went to Tunbridge, which was a, still is, ferociously muscular public school that only cares about cricket and um, rugger. And I was rubbish at both. Um, so I uh, thought, well, you know, I'll swim against the stream rather than with it. And I've kind of been doing that ever since. But I had a, a peripatetic childhood. My father was a diplomat. So I've never sort of, I've always had a restlessness, which means my boredom threshold is terribly low. And I will go on to the next thing um, as soon as I can. Mm -hmm. Do you have just mentioned actually about your, your father being a diplomat because you were born in what's now Malawi. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, did you, um, how long were you there for? Well, I was sent over to school, um, but uh, they came back at independence. My dad's job um, was to make sure that Nyasaland, as it was then called, was handed over peacefully without bloodshed, without a revolution, with enough of a uh, a legislature and a judiciary and a, and, and a government structure of, of uh, native nice, nice land Africans capable of running it smoothly. And bless him, he achieved it. There wasn't a revolution. There wasn't too much bloodshed. 
And although it remains one of the poorest countries on earth and is now an, almost entirely owned by the Chinese, um, uh, they are the most wonderful, wonderful people. And growing up with them was, was incredibly instructive of, of human values, of kindness, of, 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 of the environment, of um, a, a world that wasn't home, as we call it in inverted commas. And um, I, I hope that that has, has informed what I've written. My, my politics, you know, despite my horrible um, imperialist past, are entirely liberal. And um, uh, I think we have to be terribly careful, particularly in the crisis that we're going through at the moment, what happens to countries like Mali. Um, they're having a, a really hideous time there, uh, with, with um, very little to support them. And, and culturally, did you, did you take much from the, the sort of local cultures that you were experiencing, or was it a That's fairly colonial childhood? <laughs> Well, it, it was colonial in respect that the only three records we had LPs that had made it out there and to which we listened on the veranda, you know, as the, with the sundowners in hand, were Flanders and Swan, whose piano I've just inherited. It's behind, yes. It's over there. Uh, uh, the uh, Julian Slade Salad Days, which taught me about melody. Flanders and Swan taught me about lyric writing, I think, and humour, because Flanders was such a great lyricist. And um, O'Neill Coward. And so for the first eight years of my life, that was it musically um, from, from, from the West, from Europe. However, all around us, there were the African rhythms, the, the, the dancing, the, the amazing um, sort of Victorian harmonies, those incredibly subtle rhythms that, that, that went over with the slave trade to, to the Caribbean. And um, so, I've always been very fond of Latin music, um, as, as it's you know finally become. Um, so it was an odd mixture, and then the cathedral, of course, you were drummed in to the very, very highest standards of Western musical civilization, uh, for which I'm immensely grateful. It was hard work, but God, I was grateful for that. Mm. Yeah. The um, uh, just. Aside from that, I think it is always interesting when you have a sort of ecclesiastical upbringing of one form or another. Well, you you had one too, of course. Yeah, yeah. and um, the, because my uh, dad was the son of a Methodist minister. Oh, really? So, yeah, yeah. So, and my grandmother, who had been online to be an opera singer, um, having married my grandfather, who was of course not allowed to do anything quite so improper, and um, she gave me my first music lessons. Um, me up to the voice trial at the cathedral and so forth. And um, so I got a lot of opera through her, mm. which was lovely. Uh, and I've got op opera singing um, cousins and so forth. Mm. And, and then a rather more raucous and tatty um, sort of ancestry in that my great aunt was a, a very bad opera singer. She was a chorus girl in the Charlotte Review of 1933. She was the first woman to sing Mad About the Boy. Um, which is wonderful. Um, and she had a flat in Mayfair at the age of 23. Uh, and there was only one way to get a flat in Mayfair at the age of 23. So we weren't allowed to talk to her. Um, but she um, changed her name and under the aegis of her protector, um, went off to Italy in the 30s to try and become um, a great opera star. Of course, back to entirely the wrong political course <laughs> and ended up... Um, in Kenya, I once had the farm in Africa, you know, along with all those terrible old fascists. Um, and um, 
and, and I thought she was good fun. And then, then there was another great aunt who had an all-girl ukulele group, which topped the bill. They were called the, the, the Brewsters, the Royal Brewsters, after they taught Queen Victoria how to play the ukulele. And um, they, were, they were, you know, the biggest stars of the early Edwardian period. Um, and then at the outbreak of the Great War, um, they were caught behind enemy lines, these six lady ukulele players. Um, and it became the big national story, how they would get back across enemy lines back to England. Um, and they tried everything. They dressed up as nuns. They had to pawn their jewelry. They pretended they were American. Um, and then finally, uh, there was a, a Times headline, which I treasure, you know, because the nation was on edge. How would they get back? Um, using only their ukuleles and their feminine wiles, they made it back to Harwich and the heroine's welcome. But I love the idea of ukuleles and feminine wiles being used to, to, to counter the Bosch. Um, I thought that was very, very funny. But so, so it's, you know, it's a weird family background. Um, and it sounds, and I know my voice because I was a chorister, sounds incredibly privileged. In fact, there's quite a lot of sort of tawdryness in there, which I, which I very much welcome. Yeah, and I think that's why I, I've always been wooed by the, the the louche side of show business, the cabaret clubs, and the um, um, uh, where, where I got my equity card in a Raymond Review bar. I went to know what I was doing. <laughs> I've come along too. <laughs> it was at, it was at the Windmill Theatre, you know. If it's, yeah. it's, it's rude, um, I was the compare because of my beautiful accent and there were strippers and uh, there was one girl who could hang coat hangers from her nipples i remember and um, that was her trick there was a muscle boy so stoned on steroids that it kept on falling over and um a lot of drag queens fabulous drag queens ruby venezuela was one who went on to found um uh, madame jojo's um and um oh, a boy who had a sort of prise de nerve andre adore who piled all his drag into the middle of his dressing room at one point, set fire to it and jumped aboard saying, Je suis Jean d'Arc, je suis Jean d'Arc, regarde-moi, je suis Jean d'Arc. Um, and I think he was sent away after that. But, um, but they were wonderful times in, in, in sort of pre-Costa Starbucks um, Soho, you know, when Soho really was Soho. Um, and uh, God knows what was going on in the dressing rooms. I mean, most of them were on the game. And if you stumbled out into the street at the end of the show, um, you know, it was vomit and thims. And um, lovely, really lovely. And I was doing that at the same time as being a music and art staff producer at the BBC. That was my day job. Um, in the days when we still had a music and arts department. And um, the head of department rather relished having producers or researchers or whatever who actually were actively involved in the arts. And this was the very beginning of the sort of cabaret revival. So I think I was their man at, at, at the rock face in, in Paul Raymond's club. Which uh, I think now that the most, the last of them has now received a sort of um, bit of a revival as a, as a slightly arty theatre now, I see. This yes, thank God, because um, poor old Paul, who I adored and, and we owed a great debt to, and, you know, Paul was reviled as a, Pornographer. I mean, actually, his pornography was pretty tame stuff compared to what we've got now. Um, but he had started off as a mind-reading act in Deptford, and he was very fond of that sort of underbelly of show business. And he used to come to dinner with his Rolls Royce to my house in Deptford before Deptford was 
gentrified at all. Very rough. And um, and do mind reading. <laughs> and then and then because of the awful tragedy that happened, his sort of heiress OD'd um, and died, and he became a total recluse. Um, uh, this huge property empire descended upon India and 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 upon uh, his his two grandchildren. Um, when they were very young, and all the trustees sort of gathered and said, right, we need to redevelop and pull down Soho and turn it all into Starbucks. Um, and thank God, at just the right moment, Indira and Fawn said, no, let's honor our grandfather's memory to an extent and try and keep that sort of Soho burlesque tradition alive. Um, uh, and, and they're great girls, thank goodness. Uh, you know, Soho, thanks to the campaigns to save old Soho as well. Um, I don't think it's irredeemably doomed. Mm. There'll always be a need for that sort of theatre. And it's always colourful and it's always good fun and it's always what cabaret should be, which is which is subversive. And um and and if our theatre lacks that strain, then it's going to be very dull theatre indeed. Well the um I'll I'll come back to you talking about your your, your time at the BBC, but the <clears throat> obviously your works of cabaret performance is what in the minds of, of masses of people who've encountered your work. And there's this marvelously mercurial style to your to your work, which is at, at once superficially incredibly establishment and yet also incredibly subversive. Um, do you think it's easier to sort of to use a phrase that I don't particularly like very much, but to sort of uh, go somewhere towards speaking truth to power if you've made them laugh first? Exactly, exactly that. If 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 you are Ben Elton haranguing, or if you're Alexi Sell, and that was my generation, um, then they just put the shutters up. If you can coax them in your beautiful Oxbridge accent and your cowboy training um, and, and careful lyric writing to get their attention, and then you stick the knife in, you're not preaching to the um, converted and you are preaching to the unconverted, which is much more valuable. Um, it's, it's sweet of you to notice that um, because, I mean, too often, I think, looking back, um, were perceived as tops. Um, and, you know, as I've said, I'm not really a top. I'm not really an imperialist, but I can pretend to be a top and an imperialist and then um, say, but look, we've got clause 28, this is wrong. Um, but look, uh, you know, Africa's on its knees and we should be helping it. Um, but look, the Chinese are buying everything. Um, and And because of, that accent, yeah, you you know, we we did David Cameron's 50th. We 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 sing to Boris and to that lot and say, look, hey, you guys, it's not a closed shop, you know, and we mustn't guard privilege at the expense of other people, whatever that is, you know. In, otherwise, you don't have a society. Um, oddly enough, we <laughs> um, we sang to Mrs. Thatcher. Accidentally, I have a, a white van, which is my sort of mobile dressing room and so forth. And we were singing at all places at Grantchester for Geoffrey Archer, who makes me laugh. Um, and um, she was there and she was just beginning to lose it. And she was going around the back where my van of the marquee, where my, my van was parked, and she had to sit down because she was getting on. And she sat down there and well, this is very nice. You know, I could with one of these. And um, and we had about a half an hour chat where, and, you know, so who are you? And I told her, um, what do you sing? And she, you could see her thinking, actually, this is quite an interesting way of 
speaking to uh, I mean her power by that stage was diminished but all her acolytes were there at the party and um, uh, the old girl slightly melted I think she was pissed actually but anyway. <laughs> either way I mean, it, was, it was rather wonderful because uh, Dennis was still alive right. and um, he was trying to shake off his close protection squad of, of you know security officers and he went down to the sacred grove in the river where Rupert Brooke and the, um, the sort of golden children of the Edwardian period used to swim naked, um, just below the arched house, um, and got it out and started pissing away. And the, um, uh, the close, you know, all the guards came down on him and sort of tried to drag him back. And he just, God, a fellow have a piss in peace, <laughs> with we everywhere. It was lovely. I giggled. Uh, you, you've actually already touched on this idea. I was going to say that in the, the late 80s, you managed to um, completely excoriate Clause 28 with, um, with Burn the Faggots. Which, the, oh, God, you still, yeah, that was a good one. That was a great um, one, which I, I used to occasionally direct people to. Um, oh, no. The, uh, <laughs> You'll get arrested by the thought police. <laughs> well, I just thought, you know, it's, it's, uh, I didn't think it was that unobvious what the message was but the um it's now i see been taken down it used to have a home on youtube where you could still watch footage oh no have they taken it down yes i, I, why. I don't know who put it up but um i was trying to repost it mustn't i oh you must i think you must, yeah. I, I don't know if i've got i've suddenly got a um an audio recording of it yeah well this was it was that huge list at the end, in the final judgment who shakespeare has been yeah. you know it, homer tchaikovsky so challenged me, the Conservative MP for Spellforth in Surrey. Um, <laughs> I think it had been it had been filmed. Where was it filmed? I want to say it was filmed at the Comedy Store. And it, I think it was. Yeah, being yeah, it used was. as uh, part of a compilation because I remember that the particular version that was up at the end had a clip afterwards, and it was some sort of roundup that Chris Tarrant was presenting who sort of oh uh, no was he yeah he sort of said oh you know the the the, the marvelously celebrated kissing the widow he said with a song that strangely was omitted from their recent performance at the Royal Variety before <laughs> burn the faggot <laughs> <laughs> um but I mean it was coming up with that number was obviously a correct but also I think could be said almost a politically correct thing to do at the time and now Sort of thirty years on, your new number is so much relearning to do um, about the very fast-paced developments and identity politics. Also, seems sort of on the surface a slightly eye-rolling harumphated, but I feel also seems to have a certain degree of acceptance with it. So much relearning to do. Lines must be written anew. It's time we realigned every old cliche with pronouns reassigned from he or she to they. What if old person river doesn't scan like it order? Doe a deer means female deer, raise not a drop of golden daughter. But white male privilege corrupts every song, and J.K. Rowling is wrong. Do you think humour has changed in those 30 years, make it's, it harder to be so It's become impossible. It really has become impossible. And I'm certainly not the first, you know, comic performer to say so. Um, because humour has to offend by definition. And if you've got an audience which is going to take offence that easily and, and 
then crucify you on Twitter and kill your career, um, then you can't be funny. We, we did a song at Edinburgh two years ago, Nothing's Allowed to be Funny Anymore. Um, uh, it's, it started with Goodbye, Dear Les Dawson and Your Darling Mother-in-Law. Um, and then we told a Les Dawson joke. Um, my, mother's, my mother-in-law has been coming to us for Christmas for the last 20 years. Sooner or later, we're going to have to let her in. Um, and then, of course, the audience laughs. And they think, oh, no, we're not supposed to laugh. Uh, and and you, you can actually see it in the audience, that this sort of censorship that's come slamming down. Um, we, had a, we have a song um, about Trump's building of the wall mm-hmm. um, a, across you know, the border from Mexico. The, the, the comedy of which, and the political point, is it's actually the Mexicans building a wall against Trump to keep unsavory Trumpists out of Mexico which I thought, you know, was a neat little turn and politically correct. Um, and I was castigated because I'd used mariachi music to set it to, which was cultural appropriation. And I thought, for, you know, how on earth do you win? You're trying to make what I've always done, you know, um, musically informed, um, hopefully articulate political points of a liberal nature. But there are these elephant traps everywhere. I don't know what the answer is. I think, I think, thank God, that the kickback is happening. And so much relearning to do seems to be a way of, of saying, okay, we do have to relearn how we treat women. We do have to relearn what boundaries are and that sort of thing. But at the same time, we've lost so much because of that. that um, it's to do with song lyrics, you know, that um, old woman river doesn't scan like a daughter. And, um, uh, or old person river, sorry. Um, uh, there's a somebody I'm longing to see. I hope that they turn out to be someone to watch over me. And the, the rhyme scheme stopped because you can't say she anymore. And um, uh, so, yeah, no, we're, we're fighting with both hands tied behind our backs. And since we are hopefully on the side of the good people, um, it's, it's foolish, I think, of the overwoke to ignore at what cost they are imposing their cultural censorship on us. The, um, I, I think what you're, you know, trying to do with that number, it's not as though you're pulling a complete sort of Lawrence Fox tantrum. <laughs> no, no, I'm just saying yeah, there, there is a lot of relearning to do, and it's tough is on this... us old showbiz lovies who think these songs are actually rather nice, but because they happen to be addressing a, um, a binary gender, um, are now being banned. And um, we, we did a, an online concert the other day uh, because we have the Flanders and Swan piano. Way! Uh, James kicks in to have some Madeira Madeira, you know, which is a fabulous song. Wonderful. And clearly is a piss take of a Victorian villain, sort of. I mean, in no way are you on his side at all. Um, and it's staggeringly good lyric writing. Um, but we're not allowed to sing it anymore. Because, you know, it's... Has the estate actually weighed in on that? I, well, I had the discussion with Stephanie Flanders, who's, um, you know, the, the economist, and her um, sister, Laura, lovely friends of ours. And um, they said, no, I don't, we can afford to license it anymore. But I, I don't know if they've actually banned it, but they were seriously saying, no, we've got to take that one out of the repertoire. Um, and he said, it's a joke. It's a joke. You can't possibly imagine that this, you know, we're going to side with this filthy old man. And it's a piss take of a Victorian melodrama, the whole thing. You can tell. 
Um, and if you remove the, you know, the, the top surface, you lose all that cultural accretion underneath, and you're not going to be intelligent enough to see that, then we're going to end up with a, an audience of dimwits who can't laugh. Coming out from a different angle and from some, some distance of time, um, uh, going back to the early 80s, I mean, I'm sure you were beavering away as well, but it did seem that success didn't have to look too hard to find you in that sort of early period. And Sorry, yeah. you know, so at the BBC by 24 and then by 30, leaving to, to write the screenplay for Morris. Um, I mean, coming out in 1987, you've got the heart of the AIDS crisis. It was extraordinary. It really was. Homophobia yeah. was surging. Did it feel like a very brave movie to make at the time? Um, the whole thing happened quite so quickly that I wasn't really in a position to consider. I mean, my, my mates, such as I had in the film industry, the English film industry as it was then, um, were Derek Jarman, whom I adored um, and is now venerated. Um, but my sister happened to have been married to Julian Sands, who just had a huge success with um, Room of the View. Um, Jim Ivory wanted to do Morris as the third Forster in a sort of the view, Morris Howard's End, in a sort of symphonic way, really. Um, he unexpectedly had three months in which to make it. Ruth was, uh, Ruth Prabhajabala, the normal screenwriter, was, was um, uh, writing a book and anyway felt uncomfortable with the subject. She didn't feel she knew it well enough. Um, and uh, was therefore unavailable. And he had in a hurry to find a, a screenwriter or a co-screenwriter um, who knew England, who knew the media, knew the, 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 um, uh, the, the slang and so forth. Um, and by total coincidence, I happened to have been at Tunbridge, which was Forster's school, at which he was thoroughly miserable. I'd been at um, Cambridge. Uh, I'd actually m just missed meeting Forster. He died, I think, in 73, 74. And I went up in 76, 70, I can't remember. Anyway, I, and he used to be there on the, um, uh, on the main court at King's College in his deck chair, watching the beautiful boys on Fleur sort of parading up and down. Um, and uh, so it was all done in a howling hurry. Looking back on it, there were mistakes in the screenplay that had, we had more time. Um, but it went from green light to first day of shooting in about five weeks. It was an astonishingly quick thing. Um, and uh, the, the three lead actors had to be young in their early 20s, so they wouldn't have been famous. Um, Julian dropped out and was replaced by James Wilby, who puts in an absolutely Oscar-winning performance. Um, there was a chap called Hugh Grant that I'd done um, a lot of review with at the King's Head in Islington. And um, so when they were casting Clive, um, Jim said, you know, do you know, do you know anybody who could play Clive? Apparently I was in the frame for Clive, thank God I wasn't. And um, uh, I said, well, this guy, Hugh Grant, he'll make us laugh. We ought to have him and he's very pretty. Um, uh, so, ergo Hugh Grant. And then Rupert Graves, who um, came through a more conventionally uh, channeled casting agent and, you know, was so beautiful that, that um, he kind of, uh, sends the antenna out too early in the movie. He's meant to be just sort of this little character floating around in the background. And then very gradually he comes to the fore of the story. Um, but Rupert was so striking that even if he was eating a sandwich in the back of a picnic, you'd, you know, your eye was instantly drawn to him. 
Um, and they put in the most astonishing piece of acting, I think, all of them. Uh, I think I still think it's the best thing that he's done. And um, it, we all went off to Venice, where it, it was premiered at the film festival. The Italians adored it. We had a sort of 15-minute standing ovation, um, bowing graciously. And um, the Japanese adored it because all the Japanese schoolgirls fell in love with you. And um, it did very well in America. It ran for a year in Paris. In England, um, where we, as you say, were going through the AIDS crisis, where um, I think three of the guys who worked on Morris died in that epidemic. Um, and Claude's 28 was happening. There was this rampant homophobia. So I was just too caught up into the turmoil of, you know, my first movie and the movie set and, you know, the, the whole sort of dizziness of it all that I hadn't quite realized what outside the little bubble of the film crew um, we were doing. And to me, it was just another very good Forster novel to be adapted for the screen. Um, but no, it didn't do well in this country until it was re-released a couple of years back. And now you go on the net and, you know, it's everywhere. Um, and Jim, bless him, is still alive. I was talking to him this morning. Um, uh, hold up in <laughs> his lockdown, which is a particularly beautiful Greek revival mansion in upstate New York, you know, smiling and sweating it out. And, um, uh, and, and now I think because of its historical context, because it's now a piece of film history, because it was the first um, gay story ever to have a happy ending, um, and because it's shot astonishingly by the cameraman Pierre Lhomme, um, uh, people are realizing that 20 years before Brokeback Mountain, which was, you know, the, the, the great gay movie, there was this movie called Morris. Um, and I think people are waking up to that now. But, you know, it's got this incredibly telling line, which Ben Kingsley delivers in the movie, England has always been disinclined to accept human nature. Um, and aren't we seeing it now with the lockdown rules? I mean, how on earth does the government expect an entire generation of non-vulnerable people not to have sex for a year? It's bonkers. I mean, it's bonkers. Um, of course, it should have been the other way around. We just isolate the oldies and, um, uh, and, and let the rest of us get on with it. Oldies? No, I'm an oldie. Sorry. I'm isolated. <laughs> I'm isolating because I'm looking after my 90-year-old father um, in the next village um, who is, you know, vulnerable. And even he, the other day, said, look, you, you can come out from your monastic seclusion. I, I'm 92. I'm on borrowed time anyway. I don't wish to see an entire generation spoiled on my account, which I'm going to cry about. <laughs> but, um, um, you, that, that seemed to be a sign, okay, let us all get on with it and see what happens. Mm. And, and uh, of course, old people are going to suffer and it's going to be horrible. But at least we won't cripple emotionally and psychologically and sexually an entire generation by expecting them to wank for a year. I mean, it's just bonkers, bonkers. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, I'm, I'm very, very pleased that Jim, uh, who's the last of the triumvirate, because uh, Ismail, of course, the producer, died a long while back, um, is alive to get the Oscar for the screenplay of Call Me By Your Name, which was, again, a huge success. Um, but it's an Oscar that resonates back to Morris. And the two films are absolutely bookends. Um, they're extraordinary when you compare them. Yeah, the now, um, you don't, of course, 
just simply do um, uh, works like that or the mixture of, of hilarious and fluffy and also occasionally heart-rending sort of chanson. You also undertake the highly technical and rarefied work of the librettist as well. Um, yeah. Talk to us about that. And, and also tell us what we were supposed to be seeing if we weren't all locked in our homes. It's, it's heartbreaking. This week was meant to be the premiere of um, The Life and Death of Alexander Litvinenko, which is a piece based on the biography of Alexander Litvinenko, who was poisoned uh, famously um, in a Mayfair hotel by two goons. It's wonderful. And then it's, we've had it again with Skripal, but they send such comedy assassins over. Um, but based on Marina, Marina's book, um, and um, it was meant to be premiered this week. It had a wonderful sort of shamad of, of, of pre-publicity and everyone was very much looking forward to it. It's a, a work which because of Skripal really, I think is important and because of Russian interference in practically everything um, is, is gaining importance. And it was meant to be premiered this week. It's been put back by literally a year. It's going to happen again same time next year. Um, uh, that that's, was lovely because it, um, it was writing a libretto from scratch. I've done an awful lot of opera translation. And as you say, it is a very technical job and there are very few of us doing it. Um, there's Jeremy Sams with whom I was at Cambridge whom I adore and got to the Merry Widow before I did the Bastard. So he, um, they always do his version. But, but they, again, they would be doing that, meant to be doing that, my version in Holland Park this summer. That's, um, I don't know what time that. And um, there's, there's Jeremy, there's me, and there's Amanda Holden, who everyone thinks is the um, Strictly X Factor come dancing panelist hostess, but is another Amanda Holden, who, who she does very good work on the more serious stuff, the sort of the heavy verdes and the Wagners. And, um, uh, and there are very few of us doing it because it does require a particular skill set. You need to have been a singer, uh, so you don't give your um, soprano an uval on a top of E because you could switch the straight. You need to have a certain facility with linguistics and translation, although um, I always profess I speak these languages better than I do. Um, and you have to have a sense of drama and theatre and performance and, and how to structure a piece uh, as a play so that the, the words matter. You have to um, write to certain singers occasionally who are you know, good at some things and not at others. Um, and you have to be the whipping boy an awful lot. But um, it's been a great treat and I've worked really for, I think all our opera houses now. I did um, <laughs> what the Kings Lynn News called the Battered Bride in a fabulous typo. For the Royal Opera, I've I've done stuff at the Eno until the Great Kismet debacle, um, which wasn't my fault. Um, the uh, and and a lot for the the Opera North Scottish Opera, Scottish Opera have had good fun slapping Jeremy around the face with my version of um, the Magic Flute, uh, which is, um, which Tom Allen took up, bless him, and and has had a a wonderful success, um, and and. I'm working at present, thank God, because I can't perform in public, um, on a, a couple more, um, a, a, a project a, a project with Indian music, uh, which I can't really talk about too much, but, but um, 
is going to be interesting. It's 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 Indian music in a sort of Monteverdian um, period. I mean, it's set in a Monteverdian period, i.e., the early seventeenth century, and um, it's about the building of the Taj Mahal. Uh, but but with sitar music and and Indian classical ragga and all that sort of stuff. Um, and I'm doing something more light for Buxton called Viva La Diva, which is a little known Rossini piece and is hilarious. And um, uh, I've, I've even pretended that I understand Dutch and um, have translated a, a, a thing based on Charlie's aunt, which has been a rampant success in Holland, um, which is actually very, very funny, but it's very PG Woodhouse period, sort of me and my girl um, uh, lyric writing. Um, which I've stuffed with internal rhymes because Stephen Sondheim told me to. Um, and, um, and, and all those lovely jagged sort of Charleston Lee Foxtrotty rhythms are such fun to write internal rhymes with. Um, but uh, I don't know what's happening to that. I'm going to go out in the Van Blanc in my white van in a couple of weeks time to the south of France for a script conference um, uh, on a ferry. That'll be exciting, won't it? Um, isolated in my ferry bubble, in my, in my board tranny. Um, uh, and um, I, we're hoping that it'll workshop in, in sort of winter of this year and we'll get it on next year sometime. But um, it's, it's, it's a lovely job to have that skill set for because you've kind of got an almost monopoly on it. So, you know, you're, you're not too worried about the future. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm cross about Litvinenko because it's damn good. Good. Um, I can say that because you know, I'm, I'm only the world's domain. Uh, but Stephen Metcalf is a brilliant opera director directing it. And this guy, Anthony Bolton, composing what Sondheim calls squeaky gate music. <laughs> but, um, but terribly effective. And it's such a chilling story and a heartbreaking story. Um, we had the first playthrough before lockdown. And I purposely hadn't met Marina because I thought, I don't want her to influence my characterization of, of, of a figure who should work on her own account on stage. I want mine to, you know, have dramatic integrity. And um, so the first time I'd actually met her, um, she was sitting all on her own at the end of the row, rather like Meghan Markle at Wimbledon, nobody knew. And, um, and just watching the tears slowly roll, rolling down her cheeks, I thought, Thank God she likes it. And um, it, we're now firm friends. But uh, what a woman and what a story. That's a hell of a story. And, and that will, as you said, be rescheduled for a year's time. A year's time. I think we just cancelled 19, no, no, 19, 2020. And, um, and, and just you know, have a year out. Why not? It's quite interesting living as a monk in a church um, because you kind of, poverty, chastity, obedience, um, you kind of, see what it was all about. And there were an awful lot of monks for an awful long time. Mm. Um, and we owe an awful lot in, in Western civilization to monks. And um, since I started off living in a cathedral, I might as well just wind <laughs> up. Absolutely. Three days. People who like Sondheim always dress in turquoise and white. Never ever miss a first night. Memorize his shows. People who like Sondheim 
sit and seethe in impotent rage, saying he's ahead of his age. That's why no one goes. Religiously, they learn all those eternal and infernal internal rhymes. Though they're quite mechanical, chanting them litanically hundreds of times. And oh, what a shame that the moment you feel that the tune might begin. <laughs> you have now touched on, um, it's almost as though I sent it first in advance, um, the um, uh, Stephen Sondheim, who you oh. um, an Oxford. 30 years ago, is that now? God, is it really? Yeah, my son had just been born, so yeah, he's 39. Yeah. Um, I mean, what a treat that was. I can imagine. I mean, um, other than obviously the, the manifold benefits of turquoise and white, what would you say was the most important thing that he took? About sometime, his generosity, his intellectual generosity, which isn't to say he's not perfectionist he clearly is and he expected perfection um I would, uh, to recap he 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 was the first professor of contemporary theater at the cameron mcintosh chair of contemporary theater um at oxford so for a year we he recruited 12 disciples um to sort of follow and touch the hem of his garment um and it was the year that they were putting sunday in the park with george on at the national he'd just written Assassins. He was writing passion at the time. Um, but he has that quiet confidence of a man who knows that he's a genius and doesn't have to be defensive about it and be generous with his wisdom and impart it, which he, he did. I describe it as like having your ears syringed, you know, that you suddenly hear things more clearly. You realize the timing of an, a sibilant, if you delay it by a, a semi-quaver, can make all the dramatic difference in the world. Um, he, he upbraided me for <laughs> rhyming Sirocco and Morocco because um, it's an identity, not a rhyme. Um, go away and think of something else. And if, if a, a near rhyme is worse than no rhyme at all, you know, if it don't rhyme, it don't rhyme. Um, but also the fun of it, you know, to, to use a technical term, to use an enjambement to make an internal rhyme that that's not, you know, the audience isn't expecting or doesn't expect because it's not falling on where the rhyme should fall um, and just making it more delicious. Um, and his felicity with that is astonishing. I think very occasionally he's beguiled by it and there are rather more rhymes than you need and rather more lines than you need because they're all wonderful rhymes. Um, but what a grand man. Um, it breaks my heart. He was meant to be coming over to have this Stephen Sondheim Theatre named for him and um, to celebrate his 90th. Um, and all us 12 disciples were, were um, meant to be having dinner with him in a little sort of upper room um, and crying gently into our pastor over our, our careers not being as glittering and distinguished as his. Um, and he, he had to abandon it. But we had a, a, a Zoom dinner party. Um, and it was terribly moving. At the end, he was crying and saying, you are my children, you are my children. I said, God, if only. But, um, but we all benefited vastly from the experience. And um, I think the little flames he, he lit in our 12 little hearts um, are still bravely burning away, you know, a bit sort of haphazardly because theatre is a very haphazard business. But um, no, it, it was his generosity of wisdom, I think. 
I remember certainly stuff when you know studying his work as well as, as just mm. enjoying it. The um, and finding initially finding myself frustrated at, at how difficult it can be to sometimes access, you know, what, what's what's within it. Until I, I saw him being interviewed, where he said, "Well, it's because he said I don't." The first thing I do, he said, musically, is is I write the landscape. And I suddenly yeah. realized, yes, that's, that's what it is. That's, you know, all this sort of, the sort of slight sniffiness that there was at a point about, oh, well, you know, he can't write a decent tune. Um, and yet, actually, you know, the, the, but, he, but he does paint beautiful pictures. He paints beautiful pictures. And then when they come together, like the Act One finale of Sunday in the Park with George, you are blown away by very great art, the sort of art that makes you realize that mankind is an astonishing thing. And it, it takes a big genius to do that and pull it off. Um, and uh, it, it's it's funny because we, we acquired a certain amount of notoriety with the song about Andrew Lloyd Webber and, and the sort of um, the implied rivalry between the two of them. Um, and Andrew, who I think, you know, he's a brilliant impresario, a wonderful melodist. Um, and when he's on form can, you know, write a tune that you know, gets you viscerally on the first level. Sometimes harmonies are more subtle, so they take a while to sort of soak in and, and acquire meaning. Andrew wasn't pleased with his song, but we did one about Stephen, um, which he was so thrilled by. Um, oh, and, and, oh, just in the moment you feel that the tune might begin. <laughs> um, and he's got a copy of it in his bathroom mirror, apparently. <laughs> And, yeah, I mean, tremendous. It's, 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 I'm so pleased to hear you show up what I always thought was the case, but I think tremendous generosity. I know that I, I taught for a while where I trained and, and uh, in Wales, and, and um, one of my students um, decided just for larks, I think, as much as anything, because I think he paid for it out of his own pocket um, uh, to mount a production of Forum. Um, oh, good. With, um, with some of the ones from his year. Mm. And it was his last, he produced a musical every year he was there because he couldn't find, none of the sort of student drama groups or, or the musical theatre society or anything like that would um, touch any of the stuff that he wanted to do because it was either slightly too niche or a bit ambitious or whatever. So mm. he tended to put it on low budget and pay for it himself and uh, tremendous. Um, and he did a rather rather fun production of Forum, uh, and I wrote to various people beforehand to ask if they could, you know, send a few messages beforehand to just to gee them up. And the last one to arrive was an incredibly gracious card from, from Solvang. Oh, well, no, he's, he's very diligent about that. Oh. Mind you, he, he afforded a huge secretarial staff to do all that for him. Well, I guess. But, you know, so lovely, lovely handwritten card which said, just tell the cast that if they have a good time but not too good, the audience will. <laughs> <laughs> he's, 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 he's very alert to all that. But again, you know, you go back to, um, in, in forum, everybody ought to have a maid. You couldn't, you couldn't sing that now. Um, <laughs> And you sort of think, well, if, if this movement is going to destroy one of the very few ocean-going, copper-bottomed, industrial-strength, 24-carat geniuses of our culture, um, then where are we, you know? Mm. Now, one of your great loves as a performer has been pantomime. Uh, ah. And you've spent a 
decade, as you've already said, and mm-hmm. the Yvonne Arno Theatre in Guildford every year playing the villain. You're, uh, oh, this now, how do you phrase this? Because it might be necessary to write in the same order. You are one of two Panto people who we've we've interviewed for this series. The other one. Who's being... the other? Is it bloody Biggins? No, it's not Biggins. No. <laughs> Biggins, uh, Biggins introduced us, my wife and I. We are we are the children of Biggins. Yeah. Oh. Without uh, Biggins, nothing nothing would have been possible. Well, yeah. This the <laughs> um uh, no it's it's um strange that I was actually just watching a, a piece of archive footage of you when I was prepping for this from uh, three, when you performed in three two one. Freaking egg. A long time back. Um, but uh, yeah, as a unit were on that. Uh, it's Ted Rogers' son, Danny, who um, is a, a really rather fine pantomime actor. And, and what does he do? What does he do, Dame? What does he do? Uh, no, he sort of does. Um, uh, he tends to do comic, yeah, mm. sort of, um, silly Billy type roles. Okay, the buttons bit. Uh, yeah. He does very well with comedy. And I saw him, I met him first. A year ago, was it the Brighton Fringe, where he does a show. Ted died when he was eleven. Did he? Because um, it's it a long time since Ted's been around. Yeah. Yeah, he died in two thousand and one. Danny was eleven. It was the second marriage. Oh. The younger child, and because his mother, before he was born, had a horse riding accident and sustained a head injury, which induced oh, schizophrenia. Oh. Um, within a week of the funeral, the child that had sort of been born into great. Uh, uh, sort of splendry and show business yeah. um, was uh, in care. Um, oh no! Why did we hear about that? Um, well, we will do now. Well, we'll do now. Yeah, he he, right, he There was a neighbour, I think, who took care of them and, and and eventually managed to arrange it so that he was always close to where his mother was, and, mm. and she's now in a nursing home. But um, and got money together to send them off to boarding school so they had a certain amount of stability and. Uh, he has written the most wonderful, very sweet show about his journey of discovery about his father called nice. Bin and Gone. <laughs> yeah. um, and um, he's he's wonderful, wonderful man. Oh, well, I'll certainly look out for that. Yeah, that's astonishing because that's happened twice to me. Stephanie Flanders, who we talked about, was only four, I think, when her father died and, and um, is constantly asking, you know, what was dad like? Why was he great? Blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, and she knows I got this piano. I might leave it back to her if she's good. Um, and uh, and then another chap um, who's a young actor, again, very handsome, um, who is called Tom Joyner and played Morris in a in a stage production last year that they did at the Stag Theatre, directed by James Wilby, How Do It All Come Round. But the house where we shot Morris, Wilbury Park, belonged to this extraordinary woman called Maria St. Just, who'd been married to a... Again, a schizophrenic, depressive, bipolar person. Peter's unjust, the second and last Lord's unjust. Um, with the result that Tom never knew his grandfather either. And um, there was a very moving moment. Maria had given me Peter's unjust's beautiful smoking jacket um, made in the 60s. Um, and Tom had sort of got in touch with a mutual friend and came up for lunch here in Norfolk. And I was able, tissue wrapped with enormous magnanimity. To, to give him his grandfather's smoking jacket. And it was quite an emotional occasion. I mean, these, these as you say, tend to be children of second marriages who, who probably had very little time with their parents uh, or a parent. And, um, and now that I'm of such venerable age, it's lovely to be able to sort of grab those gaps. Yeah. I seem to acquire an awful lot of possessions. 
um, which I'm now graciously giving back to where they should properly be left. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah. Uh, sorry, I forgot. How did we get onto this? Oh, it was um, Panto. Oh, Panto. Panto. Yeah. What What is it about pantomime that keeps you coming back? Um, on a personal level, that my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, a first water bitch, um, lived just in the, a couple of roads back from where the Yvonne now stands. And uh, as a child, she took me down to watch it being built. Um, and so I feel fantastically loyal to that rather muddied county of Surrey. But, but on a professional level, for all sorts of reasons, villain, it's always villain, and I wouldn't do anything else. Um, villain traditionally comes on first. So you've got a minute. You come in from stage left, and there's a green flash. And you've got kids in the audience who've probably never been to the theatre before. You've got people in the audience who don't normally go to the theatre. Um, it's a wonderfully diverse audience. And you have in that minute to tell these kids, look, this isn't Xbox, this isn't Disney, this is um, this is theatre, and theatre is wonderful and astonishing. And I'm going to scare the bejesus out of you. And um, you, my record is nine children carried out screaming in the first minute. And you think, kitching, I've done it. Uh, they come back, you know pacified with, with, with um, sweeties, um, and then they're wrapped. So on that level, I think it's tremendously important. Uh, within our industry, it's vital because without Panto, you know, all our regional theatres would fold. It's the only life support system they've got, actually. Um, Patricia Rawlings, the Baroness Rawlings, who lives up the road, um, uh, uh, has been campaigning very hard for Panto to be reinstated um, as soon as possible, and if possible, this December because of these reasons. And um, I wrote her speech in the House of Lords last week, which I think when Boris says we're going to have a normal Christmas, yes, thank you, Santa Boris. Um, I'm hoping that that has something to do with it because that was a burning question, will Panto happen this year? And Nottingham has, has said they're going to do theirs. Um, as I say, Guildford is wondering what to do because it's a small house and, and you can't separate. Um, and social distance. So I'm hoping for an outdoor winter panto. Um, but also because I'm not an actor, I'm a rubbish actor, I'm horrible to work with because I never learn my lines unless I've written them myself. Um, so even up to the last night, my poor sort of whoever I'm meant to be doing a scene with has no idea when to come in with their next line. I just sort of do that at them and they know it's time to say something. Um, and because panto acting is um, you know, it's it's two-dimensional, but it's not actually. Um, you you're playing two stories at once. You're playing the story for the grown-ups with all the the naughty and you know in in you yeah you and illusions, and then you're telling a very simple story to these three-year-old kids. Um, and uh, so that's fun, keeping those two balls up in the air and being able with a nod and a wink to say this one is for mummy and daddy, and not for you guys. Um, and then we have one astonishing performance, which breaks my heart and is the reason I do Pante, um, which is called the relaxed performance. And that's for kids who um, have special needs or autism or whatever. Um, and there we temper it a bit and the house lights kept up. I'm not quite so and slightly less frightened. And it's not just the kids themselves who respond because it's a simple story, you know, a gog to what's going on. 
but it's their families, their siblings, the mums and dads and the brothers and sisters who can't normally go out to a theatre because, you know, whoever will scream and yell or, um, or need to be carried out. Um, and it's just that coming together of those families, which is intensely moving. And it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful privilege to do that matinee. Um, I think Panto, because we've all been children, is so crucial to our psyche. And it's a particularly British thing as well, you know. Um, it's hilarious watching the American cousins trying to work out what the hell is going on. Oh, it doesn't travel, does it, at all? At all. And it's genuinely local theatre. All the illusions are local. Um, it's diverse because, you know, like I say, it's, it's your plumber who's um, saved up a huge amount of money to get his kids out at, <laughs> at Christmas. Um, who wouldn't normally be seen at the Ivanano or the Czech or the National. Yeah, I mean, it's just not that audience. But you are just saying, come on, guys, this is called theatre and it's good fun. And it's very like cabaret, actually. There's no fourth wall. You're always breaking the, um, breaking the fourth wall. And the audience, as in cabaret, is part of the show. And you'll pick on people in the audience and make them part of the show. So there's a lot of thinking on your on, uh, uh, ad-libbing and thinking fast. Um, so no two performances are ever alike, so I don't get bored. As I say, my boredom threshold is that much. <laughs> and um, uh, I absolutely adore it. Absolutely adore it. And, and Guildford is wise. We always have the same dame. We always have the same buttons. And we always have me as villains. So, so we three know each other incredibly well and know how to work with each other. And then the, the literary stars from some soap opera we've never watched sort of arrive and, and our fairy or whatever. Um, and, um, but, but you know that the, the engine is still powering away. Um, and, and that whatever goes wrong, and of course it's wonderful when things go wrong, um, that, that there will be a beginning, a middle, and hopefully an end. Mm. <laughs> but it's, it is bloody exhausting. Mm. And it says in my contract, dressing room one, not because I'm vainglorious, but because dressing room one is the nearest to the stage. Yeah. And by the end, you know, Twelfth Night, um, you are literally calculating how many steps you have physically left in you to get to the stage. Um, and you are zombie for a month afterwards, flat out. I tend to go on a cruise. I don't know if you still can these days. But you just lie on a boat with people feeding you grapes. Um, uh, and that's the only way you can recover um, because you are just a vegetable. Mm. Um, it gets you out of Christmas. That's the other thing. Uh, that that. I can just get back to Norfolk in time for Christmas, which is our one day off, mm. and back again in time for the Boxing Day matinee. Um, but you have the perfect excuse not to have to do all the wrapping and the Christmas tree and the brandy butter. So you just lie on a, co a couch being fanned by, by some junior relation and, 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 and fed pudding. One of the casualties of 2020, one of the people who has been spirited away, of course, was James Lipton, who did Inside the Actors Studio. Um, he used to um, finish off with the same 10 quick-fire questions which he would oh, uh, before he'd open up to the public. Um, we'll have a run at them. What's your favourite word? Plangent. I, no, that's not original enough. I think somebody else has said plangent. I'll say plangent. Your least favourite word? Um, I can't say it because it's in porn films. But um, uh, it's fuck yeah. 
It's two words, but it comes out as one. <laughs> to be answered however you like, what turns you on? Art. Oh, God, that sounds awful. It's so Women's Weekly. But if you can turn on the sixpence, make people laugh and the same time think and cry, um, then, yeah, heart. And turns you on? Woke. What sound or noise do you love? Oh, it's the boom of the bittern. I've just taken over the um, setting up of a nature reserve down the road here, which is a beautiful lake with Ely Cathedral reflected in it and water lilies, and I swim. And the reason we're fencing it off and reserving it is because it's one of the last breeding places of the bittern in, in um, the country. And this area, the Fenland edge between the Wash and Cambridge is their last hope. So if I hear a bit of booming, I cry. <laughs> and what sound or noise do you hate? Oh, God. Um, I think it's the sound, the throb of the exciting city that is London. <laughs> What's your favourite swear word? Bugger. Because if you say bugger, you're allowed to say bugger. Um, you're not allowed to fuck. You're allowed to say bugger because bugger for some reason is posh. But when you actually think about it, um, and the, the technical act, it, it just makes me laugh that bugger is acceptable and fuck isn't. I think they're, they're both acceptable, actually, when you know to be woke about it. But, but um, it just makes me giggle. Oops profession other than those you've dipped your toe into would you like to attempt oh i know this architecture and i i i have built my own house and designed and built my own house in cornwall and i'm restoring this thing which is by dunthorne an architect that only architects know about um and built in fact the original lington hall where um lady jane's uh, gatehouses are by dunthorne hmm. They at one point they were about to collapse, and I took it to one side, wagged my finger, and said, "You need to know about Dunthorne. These are a very important relic of a very great architect. Most of whose houses are now gone." But um, architecture, yeah. And indeed, I think she has taken us on board. Yes, she has. <laughs> she's <laughs> got look... one more to do. There's one more to do on the docking road, but um, no, she's done her main gate beautifully. And thank you, Jane. Jane. <laughs> what profession would you absolutely not ever want to attend? Politician. So dishonest. And I'm, I am vice chairman of my parish council, however, which yeah. is why I know I don't want to be a politician. Yeah. <laughs> very, very good, Dibley, the whole thing down here. <laughs> well, I mean, you have plenty to draw on for that, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Um, how I much did. of it did you write? Or was it? I, I only did two of them. Um, I did the Songs of Praise one where, where the film crew comes down and Roger Lloyd Pack, bless him. Um, suddenly comes up with that beautiful tenor voice yeah. and they all have to crouch because there aren't enough chairs. And oh it's yes, it's the bit about um the F's being S's and yes. four hours, yeah. Um uh, which was much ruder in the original well, one or two days we had to cut from that. Um and uh, what was the other one? Um but a lot of the parish council meetings were informed by my insider knowledge. Yeah. <laughs>
Um, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear said to you on arrival? How much vermouth do you like in your martini? <laughs> we had a small number of questions sent by members of the public. Um, one, Thank you for being interested in the public. The, the first, uh, first of which just came from somebody who marked themselves down as a Guildford fan. Uh, oh. What is your favourite panto villain to play? Well, do you know what? Um, it was last year. Because I'm always a bloke. I've done Ugly Sister once, but you know, that's bloke, really. But I had to be... Um, oh, what's her name? Oh, yes. What was it? Um, sorry, I, I get the, the Angela Jolie, the Maleficent. In, in um, what's, what, what panty? I'm sorry, my brain. Was it Sleeping Beauty? Yes. Maleficent's Sleeping Beauty, isn't it? Yes, yes. Um, and money was tight, so they put me one of old Josie Lawrence's frocks on me. And um, for a whole six weeks, which is not something I normally do, I wore a frock. And in the um, interesting sexual politics and identity in which we're presently um, engaged, it was wonderful to see the advantages that a woman has in ordinary social intercourse. I mean, not for one moment did they think I was um, a woman. I looked startlingly like my, my grandmother. Um, but the wiles and the cadences and the looks um, was just a whole new palette to paint with, which I'd, I'd never done before. It was great fun. It's an awful, I can't remember what the show was. I mean, it's, it's, it's so very much the three of us that we could really be in any of these, like the carry-on talk, you know. <laughs> Thank uh, you, good man. I hope, that, I hope you've enjoyed my, my um, uh, uh, Carabos. That's what I was, yeah. Oh, Carabos, there he is. Yeah. The, um, I, um, well, whether they can relate further, further fond memories in the comments, I, I hope. Uh, Deborah in Chiswick asks, uh, have you a favourite cabaret room or theatre to play? Very definitely, yeah. It's the, um, the Crazy Cucks, the um, Café de Zedel, for all sorts of reasons. One, it's a dream of a room to play. It's round, nobody's too far away. There's only 90, 100 in the audience, and you're raised, total command. And because Jeremy and, and, and Christopher Corbyn, who, uh, Jeremy King, Christopher Corbyn, who, who instituted it, know about cabaret they know when to stop service they know um uh you know all the silly things that can go wrong doing cabaret don't happen there be it's a it is a very beautiful room it was um one of it was the cabaret room of the old regent palace hotel where when i was a deb's delight all those years ago you could get a room on piccadilly for 20 quid overnight very useful except you had to share a bathroom so that um you went down the corridor on your dressing gown with your sponge bag and found it locked for terribly long periods of time because, I mean, I think the tarts just came up from all the rent boys from Piccadilly and used the bathrooms. But anyway, downstairs, this, this astonishing room, the Atlantic Bar, which is now the, the bistro, and this beautiful cabaret room. And for sentimental reasons, because um, 20 yards away that way is what was the old Windmill Theatre, which was where I started in Cabaret. And 20 yards that way is the Trocadero, where um, uh, Kitty Brewster of the Flying Brewsters, the all-girl ukulele band, 
um, used to top the bill, I think, for about three years. So you just feel that you're venerating, you know, ghosts of the shades of the past. That is and it's, it's, it's also the cheapest, most glamorous night out in London. You're quite right, yes. I haven't really thought of it in those terms, but it, it's, it's <laughs> wonderful. I mean, I, when I think of the range of things I've seen. <laughs> uh, Gerald in Suffolk asks, uh, can you see there being a market for a revival of tomfoolery at any time? Oh, yeah. Um, is he dead? I was told last night that Tom Lehrer had died. Has he? I haven't anyway, picked up on um, it. Has. Again, I mean, having the Sondheim story, um, I, I did it. Thank you, Gerald. Um, maybe you saw it at Berries and Edmonds, where we did it with Dilly Keen. Mm. Um, if Lara has died, then, yeah, of course, there'll be a, a sort of anniversary um, reconsideration of it. Um, uh, the thing is that he was right, Lara. He stopped writing um, satirical songs, he said, when Kissinger won the Nobel Peace Prize famously saying satire can go no further. And um, I think he was right. You see what Trump is up to. Um, it's beyond any comic writer to cap that or, or to skewer it. It's just breathtaking. And, and everything that, that Lara was railing against so elegantly and wittily and funnily and darkly, um, has come true. I mean, uh, but I do hope so because they're wonderful, wonderful songs. And I had such fun with with Dilly Keen of Fascinating Aida uh, doing that one, particularly the uh, the, the, the Cod Irish one, um, which was where she first do, did her Irish River dance, um, and then famously developed that into her song Cheap Flights, which you know has had more hits on YouTube than than. Uh, anything um and i adore dilly and uh, she's been doing some good work in lockdown both she and i have been sort of corresponding remotely um and we've done a, a song cycle called la Pest, which is sort of various covid related numbers and it's goodbye goodbye to all that we hold dear we're in a global lockdown till christ knows when next year goodbye sardine packed commuter trains Goodbye, Laura Ashley and Richard Branson's planes. Banish from our mind our Tinder, Scruff and Grinder, gastropubs, airmail clubs, mortgage payments too. In the best of master strokes, you've killed off Hollyoaks, Mr. Pangolin. Thank you. And she's done an excellent one, um, which I do urge you to go and find. Um, and Dilly and I had to meet sort of in January and decide portion subjects okay you can have somalia i'll do putin and you so, so we're not treading in each other's toes we came to to blows over dogging uh, because we both had dogging songs and hers was much funny but um uh, but tomfoolery i do hope so it's you know it's a nice little show it's only five actors and if one of them's the pianist then you're fine and we did um cloudy custard as well which again you know cloud a, a, a fantastically wide-ranging writer of songs um, and, and she and I did that one. But I hope so, yeah. I'm a great fan of Lara, obviously. Um, and, um, oh, wait, sorry, I was going to cap the story that on the first night we got a telegram from Tom Lara himself saying, rather you than me, which was <laughs> lovely. <laughs> I have done a very quick check. He still appears to be alive. Oh, thank God. Yes, I thought they were lying. I, I thought I would have noticed that he was. Yes. 
Yeah, I mean, there's no stripling of 91 there. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, Millie from Birmingham asks, are you desperately missing Edinburgh at this time of year? Yeah, yes. It's it's anger, really, because I this would have been my 42nd consecutive Edinburgh Festival, unbroken. I mean, I so deserve the freedom of the city and they haven't given it to me. I'm going to go to Glasgow. But no, I adore Scotland. It's been very interesting in the last 10 years with, with um, the SNP revival, pitching it to the audience. When we started as tiny, very pretty little boys uh, way back when, it was acceptable to be English. And it was acceptable in the terms that we've talked about to send up the English in our very English way. Um, now, there's only mistrust. And it makes it very difficult to do the irony to the audience. And we, we have a song called Just Go Take a Bite of Britain, which, which is wronged England, sort of dismissing a discarded lover who wants to move on in the terms of Scotland as a sort of um, rather melodramatic woman waiting by the embers for her lover to return and he hasn't come back that night. Um, and it, when we first did it, um, is just go say goodbye to Britain as I wave the hand that fed you and you've bitten. And um, people who to be loved, and now they don't. Um, maybe it's around its course, but I certainly miss Scotland big time, big time. Yeah. I think we all will. <laughs> <laughs> I think Scotland will miss Scotland. Um, and finally, uh, a question from uh, Jeremy, who's just put himself down as London, nothing more specific than that. Um, you have had two very high-profile and sort of duo um, performance acts that you've, you know, you've been part of. Um, is that difficult to... I'm sorry, I've, I had to write this in myself. I'm struggling. No, don't worry. Um, how difficult is it to forge the sort of trust that's required for an act as intimate as yours. They've got wasabi beans at Nando's. They've got this quite eye-watering roasted pepper dip that's hot as hell. And the hummus comes at Nando's with a bird-eye chili drizzle that exudes a threatening smell. They've got fiery nuts, but careful, wash your hands. Or you'll have fiery nuts as well. There was something in the food that night that wasn't right at Nando's. Goodness, what a good question. Um, very is the answer. Um, Widow and I did 30 years together. Um, and it takes, I would have thought about seven years before you, you're absolutely, you, you can know that if you drop a ball, the other guy will pick it up. Um, normally, any double act doesn't last more than about five years before they're actually killing each other. Um, so you know, the fact that we managed to do 30 before Widow decided he'd had enough and wanted to go off and do his own thing. Luckily, the McConnell of that ilk, um, who had been a protege of um, Lionel Bart's, and I was a protege of uh, Julian Slade, um, had known each other throughout that period. And James, 
who's a very different kind of musician, very different kind of character, um, knew all the songs instantly and was able just to slide into the saddle. I hadn't realized how strong the Kit and the Widow brand was, and it took a long while for people to realize that it was still the same Kit, although a different pianist. And uh, a cabaret partner, not pianist, because that's too distinctive. But, but um, I, I think we've got there now. He's now the McConnell of that ilk, by the way. His father was gathered. So um, I'm always teasing him about the size of his ilk. <laughs> there aren't that many. There aren't that many McConnells. But anyway, um, and he's lovely. And he lives nearby me here in Norfolk. And we do, in this vasty space, manage to rehearse physically present with each other. Um, but what we have learned is you simply cannot do cabaret without the audience being there because, you know, the, the, the audience is part of the same equation. Um, uh, it's, it's part of the show. Um, but, uh, yeah, it takes bloody ages, is the answer. You have to know each other's little ways. It is like a marriage. Hmm. Piers Eskadarby, thank you very much. Indeed. Oh, no, thank you. Uh, <laughs> what a treat. Um, and thank you for asking such lovely questions. Oh. And good luck. And here's to Panto and Cabaret coming back again. Indeed. In the meantime, I'll just toil away in my little cell with my quill pen and my guttering candle <laughs> in this great space by Dumpholm. <laughs> You've been listening to Dark Unicorn in conversation with Kit Hesketh Harvey, written, presented, and edited by Paddy Cooper, title music by Curtis Batson. Special thanks to the estate of James Lipton, James McConnell, the McConnell of that ilk, Richard Sisson, the Yvonne Arno Theatre, Jackson Co., Gay Times, Evening Standard, the Hydro Academy and Fame, Channel 4, the Daily Telegraph and the Reading Chronicle. The series is executive produced on behalf of Dark Unicorn Productions Limited by Eleanor Sturton. COVID-19 presents one of the greatest threats to theatre in living memory. The performing arts need you now more than ever. Please, consider supporting our work by becoming a patron with packages starting at just £50 per year to be a rainbow unicorn. Just visit darkunicorn.org. Science helps us solve problems, but creativity helps us cope with them. Please don't let the performing arts be another casualty of the pandemic. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com style.